Welcome. It's good to be with you guys. It's good to be back. Uh, my wife and family, if you haven't noticed, have been away for the last few weeks um, out in California to visit with her family. Uh, and it, it re- truly was a good time. Um, it, they're not here to receive this thank you, but uh, her, her parents are just uh, wonderfully hospitable. And um, hospitality is at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we were beneficiaries of that just in the ways we experienced it. Um, one of the ways is just in that uh, they truly, like just being in someone else's home, you know, they're the ones who know the home, they take care of it, clean it. Um, her mom is, is just a, makes wonderful meals and they just absorb, I mean, we got three kids, they absorb some of that time and attention. And so uh, one of the things that it allowed for us to do is just enjoy our, each other, our family more because of all those other things that we normally have to attend to and are responsible for that we didn't. And so it was probably more of a vacation for us than it was for her parents, Um, but truly they demonstrated Jesus' hospitality to us, and we're better for it and thankful for it. Um, It's good to be back and in the Psalms with you this morning that we started last week with Pastor Matt. Thanks. And uh, I'm kind of indecisive. I don't know whether I want to sit or stand. It's just, you know, it's an audible I'll call each Sunday when when I'm up here. but the Psalms is kind of a, uh, I would like to claim that we had actually thought about how this makes sense, but it's a great uh, table being set for a mini-series we're going to be in in August on prayer, uh, where we'll talk through some uh, several different kind of practical ways that we can be communing with our God through prayer. And I say it's an appropriate setup for that because the Psalms are really a tutor in prayer. It's a compendium of 150, many of which um, are poems and songs that, are, that flow out of a prayer life of the one who wrote the Psalms, where we see in many examples vulnerability and honesty and lament and rejoicing and petitions and requests and intercessions, and we see everything that it is that uh, our prayer lives are meant to be about. So. Uh, realize, even if indirectly, that the Psalms we'll be working through over the next several weeks will give us kind of a, a head start on where we're going to be when we get into that series on prayer. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 24 today. So you can turn there now if you have your own Bibles and want to do that. And uh, little things are a little more informal this summer, so there won't really be any other slides other than the main one there. So you'll want to either listen well or follow along in your Bibles, but while you're finding your place in Psalm 24, just a little bit of a background for you to kind of set the table for this psalm. The occasion for this psalm was probably the return of the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Lord to Jerusalem under the leadership of King David. The Ark of the Covenant, for lack of a better term, was a box, a really significant, important box containing things like the Ten Commandments on two tablets that God had given Israel, the manna that he had provided them supernaturally in the wilderness, and uh, Aaron's, uh, Moses' brother, Aaron's budding staff. As I was reviewing my memory as to what was in the Ark of the Covenant, and I was reading about the staff, one thing that had never registered with me before is it didn't just bud. Uh, There was conflict in Israel over who was to be their true leader, and God vindicated Aaron and Moses by laying all these staffs out um, overnight to see which one would indicate who would be their leader moving forward, and it was Aaron's staff that budded. It didn't just bud, it actually produced the fruit 
of fully grown mature almonds. I don't know if you know that. Um, and so it made me wonder whether this was a branch from an almond tree or maybe it was a branch from an olive tree. So it was even more miraculous and that it was providing fruit from a different tree than it was originally a part of. But all of that to say, this ark and what it contained was meant to symbolize in a very significant real way to Israel, the presence of God. And they had lost it for years in a battle to the Philistines. So this was this psalm was probably written after the Philistines were defeated and they recovered the ark and it was being brought back into Jerusalem, which was the capital of and the center, the heart of the community of God's people. And so they were rejoicing with the return of God's presence into their literal midst. And it's important to understand that when this psalm was written, it was not just used on that one occasion, that all of the psalms were recited um, often corporately in their gathered worship settings throughout Israel's history. Not unlike hymnals we have today, the psalms were used regularly. And one of the interesting things that you'll see in this psalm as we read it is there are questions followed by answers. And so it's likely that in the corporate setting where the psalm was recited, the questions were being asked by the people and the answers were being given by the priests or the worship leaders. Why do I say this? I say this just to tell you that there's an example for read and response, call to worship type things that precedes even the church. So there must be some significance to why God's people throughout history, even before Jesus came, actually recited together God's word. And when we get into our series on prayer in August, one of the things that we will talk about is how one form of praying to God is actually praying his literal words. And there's something important and fundamental to our relationship with God, to just praying his words, even if there are other ways in which we pray that are more personalized. So if you're ever wondering, why do we do these recitations of God's word, these call and response prayers? It isn't just a tradition that evolved in the church over the last several centuries or even millennia. It preceded the church even back to God's people in Israel at the time of David. More broadly, one thing I want to say about the Psalms in general is that for many of them, there is both, there's a prophetic quality to them. What I mean by that is there's the things that are being said have both um, a, a present meaning as well as a future meaning or application. Uh, theologians will call this uh, scripture in the Old Testament that has double fulfillment, two meanings to it. This would be one of those Psalms in which there are, is a dual fulfillment within this psalm. So David is the author of this psalm, and as we'll see, it, the psalm is broken up into three different stanzas or sections, and he speaks about a creator, uh, one who is righteous, and a glorious king in those three different sections. And while Yahweh, God Almighty, is generally in view, there are mess messianic overtones here, okay? Messiah meaning savior. Israel was always looking forward to and knew and God had promised a future savior and there are overtones through each of these stanzas of this future Messiah who would fulfill these things perfectly. And so here's the main idea of this psalm right up front for you. Again, I believe we see Jesus throughout this whole psalm as the ultimate fulfillment. And what we see then is that Jesus is the perfect and glorious king who has made a way for everyone who follows him to have access to God, to enter into the holy presence of God. This is a theme we should be familiar with that we've encountered quite a bit in our series in Hebrews, right? Uh, before I, or just after I left, I believe uh, 
Pastor Matt preached on Melchizedek and how Jesus was a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and that Melchizedek was both a high priest who existed forever and a king. And why does this matter? What is the significance of that uh, when it comes to Jesus? Because it enables him now to be our intercessor in heaven between us and God as high priest and king who reigns there forever so that we can draw near to God and be in the presence of the throne room of God. The very same theme that David writes about a millennia before here in Psalm 24. So let's read together Psalm 24. If you don't have your own Bible and want to follow along, you can use one of the blue hardcover ESV Bibles and you'll find Psalm 24 on page 541. And when you are ready, I would ask for all who are able, if you would stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. God, we thank you for your word which reorients and recalibrates our heart back to you and your heart every time we come to it by the power of your spirit. And so we pray you would do that again this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. going to talk about this psalm in those three sections I referred to a moment ago. Verses, and, and all of these, again, I really believe are uh, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. So as I say, these different kind of headings for these different sections fill in the name Jesus as I speak about them. In verses 1 and 2, we're going to see how all creation is his. In verses 3 to 6, we'll see how all righteousness is his. And in verses 7 to 10, we will see how all glory is his. And I'm not going to go in, it'll be more evident in verses 3 and through 6 and 7 through 10, the fulfillment in Jesus. I'm not going to go to all the New Testament passages in which we could say that is true of verses 1 and 2 as well, which talk about how all creation is his. Needless to say, the New Testament uh, has several different passages of Scripture that theologically teach that creation was actually made through Jesus. So he is also in view even in verses 1 and 2 this morning. So let's take a look starting there verses 1 and 2, about how all creation is his, it, we read that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Plain and simply put, David is telling us under the inspiration of the Spirit that God owns the world and everything in it. Why? He tells us in verse 2, 
For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers, which is Genesis 1-9 language. It's creation language. So God owns the whole world because he made it. He made it ex nihilo from out of nothing. He made something. It's his through and through. But there's this little expression here, the expression in here, the fullness thereof, that I want to draw out for a moment because in the Hebrew, when we unpack what that word means, it's conjuring meaning of this idea of fullness, of wealth and fertility. It's this idea that the world as God made it is brimming with good things. Amen? Can you see that every day? Some days more than others, inevitably, but when we're reminded of that truth, it's all around us, his goodness. And the things he has made are meant uh, to be enjoyed by us as good gifts from him to help usher us into a greater worship of him, not the gifts as ends of, in and of themselves, right? But everything that has been made is his. He owns it, everything in the world. So the clothes that you're wearing, they're his. He made the materials that those clothes were made out of, the bikes that you wear, the metal alloys that were fused together to create the molds for those, that, those are his. The mobile devices that are in your pockets, the, the elements that exist, the silica sand or whatever it is that's used to make those microchips, his. The energy that exists in this world to create the heat for the molds that make the case, his. The intelligence given to design those, given to man by him. Right? The food that you enjoy, the drinks that you enjoy, the plants and animals are his. He made them. He owns them. Right? The plates that you eat them on, whether porcelain or paper, you know, like fine china or paper plates, whatever you choose, either way, they're his. There's nothing that we enjoy that doesn't have its origin in God, and so therefore he owns everything that we have and that we enjoy. They're intended to be good gifts to usher us into his worship, but it's so easy for that perspective to shift from his to ours. That's mine. And we're tipped off when that's going on in our own heart, when we find ourselves angry with the things that we don't have more of, when we find ourselves jealous of those who have more of something than we do. We have shifted our perspective from understanding that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof to these things should be mine. They're mine. And that's why I'm anxious about not having more of them. Uh, this is true for myself. It's true for our family. It's something we recognized um, is a propensity of ours. A year ago, we adopted a value for our family to always live from abund an abundance, always live from a sense of an abundance, meaning no matter whether we have plenty or relatively little by the world's perspective, it's all more than we deserve. It all comes from God, whether it's a glass of water uh, or eating out at fine dining, uh, whether it's the quarter that I find on the sidewalk or the paycheck that I receive for what I do for work, it's all his, it's all more than I deserve. We can always live from a sense of an abundance. I need to be constantly reminded of that value. And that value is rooted in the truth that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's all his, he owns it all. But the second half of verse one gets even more personal and hits closer to home because David goes on to tell us the world and those who dwell therein. Now he's talking about people, right? Now he's talking about you and I. Uh, around that same time, we were kind of establishing some family values. I kind of established a personal mission statement during my sabbatical last year. Um, and it's rooted in this idea of Psalm uh, 24.1. 
And the mission statement is to spend completely the life purchased for me on seeing, savoring, and showing the glory of God. And it's that first half in particular that really reflects what's being said in Psalm 24.1. To spend completely. I don't mean like spend some time. I mean to be spent. My purpose and yours is to be spent, to be poured out completely like a drink offering, to leave it all on the playing field of life for God. Why? Because we are not our own. We were, we were bought at a price, right? And I don't have that as a part of my personal mission statement because it's something I've owned. I have it in there once again because it's something I need to be reminded of on a daily basis. That's what God's telling us here in Psalm 24.1, that we belong to him. We are owned by God. It's easy to forget. It's even easy to begrudge, I think, in our honest moments. I, I think there are two ways probably people can respond to, to this idea that God owns everything, including us. And the first way that people can respond is that can feel kind of oppressive to them. I think we can chafe against that idea sometimes. When you think about it, in, in the example of humanity, there is no instance in which a human owning another human is a good thing. It always has negative connotations. It always ends in abuse and a stripping of the dignity that that human uh, is, is, is worth, their value. I was trying to think, is there any example which is appropriate and good? Even when it comes to parenting, we may sometimes functionally live and act as if we own our kids, whereas we try to control them because they're misbehaving, and you should behave because you're our, right? Like, maybe we wouldn't say as much, but we're probably functioning like we own them in a sense. We don't, right? As Christians, we understand the better word to describe our relationship with our kids is stewards. The Bible uses language of children being a gift from God. He is given to parents, entrusted to us for a limited period of time to be able to love them, nurture them, enjoy them, show them Jesus, point them in the right direction, but ultimately give them back to God. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein, including your my children. No human being owns another human being. But when that happens and when we take on that posture, historically or in our own lives, it always has negative consequences to it. So it's easy to project that then upon God and feel like, mm-mm, I don't like that. I don't like when the Bible or a pastor is telling me that God owns me, that I belong to him in some way. And that may be part of the reason as to why. We live in a sinful, broken world where we see that abused. Another way that we could possibly respond to that idea is that it actually feels not oppressive, but like a privilege. But we will only understand the privilege it is to be owned by God when we understand rightly the gospel, which unfolds in the rest of this psalm. So let's move on to verses three through six. I'll reread those for you. This is kind of where we'll be spending the the bulk of our time. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So the question that's really being asked here at the front end is, who is it that gets to be in God's intimate presence? That's what it means to ascend this holy hill and to be in God's holy place, is to be in the holy presence of God. Who is it that gets to be with God? Well, David gives his answer. It's the person who has clean hands, meaning does the right things, is about the right actions, um, makes the right choices. In the last 24 hours or week, 
How has that gone for you? Have you made all the right choices? Have your actions all been benevolent to those who are around you? It's not just the right actions uh, of those um, who are, uh, that are characteristic of those who get to be in the presence of God. It's also a pure heart, he says. This isn't just about doing the right things. It's about thinking the right things. It's about having a right motivation as to why you do what you do. It's about having the right inner attitudes. Even when life is difficult and you're going through trials, there's a posture of joy and thankfulness and gratitude that you still maintain. This is the person that gets to be in the presence of God. The next qualification is the person who does not lift up his soul to what is false. Uh, This idea of lifting up your soul comes through at the beginning of Psalm 25 as well. David says, who penned that psalm, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. What is he saying? I worship you and you alone, God. So the person who gets to be in the presence of God is the one for whom God is their first love, no matter the cost, that when things get hard, there is nothing and no one else that they turn to or trust more. Is that true of you? And then the fourth criteria and qualification is the person who does not swear deceitfully. This is talking about integrity. This is talking about whether your outer actions actually match up with what's going on on the inside and your heart. Does the life that you portray through your words, through your actions, through what you may post on social media really reflect the inner life of what's going on in you? This is the person who gets to be in the presence of God, who has clean hands, a pure heart, does not lift up his soul to another and who does not swear deceitfully. What is your internal gut response when you hear that list of qualifications? There could be more, but I imagine there could be at least three ways people respond to these verses. Number one could be, yeah, I qualify. That's more or less what I am. This is our response when we read this and we feel good about ourselves because we see things, these things that are described here as being characteristic of us. And the primary encouragement that we may find from a passage like that is, is satisfaction or relief that we have achieved the standard. A label we might use for ourselves if this is where we find ourselves responding to a passage like this is Pharisee. Right, the person who thinks that they have achieved God's righteous standard on their own is a Pharisee. Now, there's a slight alternative to this that we might be a little more sympathetic towards. I can relate to all these, by the way. And, and that is the person who says, I, I can be this. I'm so close. Um, I, just, I just need a little bit more of X, and then I'll be able to get here. Famously, in my own internal dialogue, it's the you know what, today was rough, but I know I can get there. Monday I'll start again, and then I'll be good. Anybody relate to that at all? It's this vicious cycle, though, that repeats over and over and over again. It's always the next day or the next Monday or the next New Year. I'll get it right. And there are a couple possible outcomes if this is how we respond to this passage. Number one, pride. Right? It's a perspective of achievement that we have, that we've achieved this. This is rooted in pride. It's just not true in an ultimate sense. Or burnout, because it's the perspective that this is possible to achieve on my own. I just need a little bit more of X. I'll get it right next time. And that inevitably will eventually lead to burnout. What is this person missing? They're missing the holiness of God. 
I am missing the holiness of God when I respond in these ways to a passage like this. I am missing that we are more sinful and flawed relative to God than I ever dared to believe. That's what I'm missing when I respond this way. There's a second way people could respond, and it's, I am not this, and I never could be. So what is the point? And we are painfully aware of how far short we fall of this description. We are not encouraged by how close we come to measuring up. We are discouraged and demoralized. Maybe we come to a passage like this and we've just finished yelling at the kids, or worse. Maybe we come to a passage like this and we've just found ourselves recently consumed with lustful thoughts, or worse. Maybe we thought we'd forgiven someone for the hundredth time, and yet we come to a passage like this and we find ourselves deeply entrenched, once again, in bitterness and anger toward that person, and we hate them. And we just think, what's the point? Maybe we are so numb and indifferent as we come to a text like this, we don't feel anything like the zealous and faithful person that's in view, and we think, I could never be that. We find ourselves constantly falling short of our own expectations, not to mention God's. A label we might be able to use for this person, for ourselves, when we find ourselves in this position, are the Peters of the world. The Apostle Peter, early on in his journey. You may remember the scene early on after he'd met Christ, where Jesus is out in the boat with him. After all night they went without a catch of fish, and with one drop of this net in a strategic location, Jesus pulls up a haul they'd never seen before, you remember what happens? Paul or Peter falls on his knees and he declares what? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. You know what? He got a half-truth there. He understood that if Jesus could see through the waters where no man could to where all the fish were, he certainly can see through to what kind of man or woman I am if we're in Peter's shoes. And he understood the holiness of God in that moment. He got something wrong, too. Jesus wasn't intending to show Peter his holiness and that he saw through to his heart so that Peter could feel bad and that it would be impossible for him to ever be in relationship with Jesus. He wanted to show him that and that he would make a way for it to be possible for him to be with him as he called him to follow after him. He got a half-truth. What was Peter missing? What are we missing when we respond this way? Well, first of all, what are the possible outcomes if that's our perspective and it ends there? Hopelessness and despair. And what are we missing? We're missing the grace of God, that we are more accepted and loved than we ever dared to hope. There's a third way that we could possibly respond, and this would be the full way, the whole way, the right way that we come to a passage like this. It may not be without a roller coaster ride or an evolution to how we understand and enter in, even as it probably was for David. Because as David wrote this description, he probably finished it under the inspiration of the Spirit and realized if this is the true character that must belong to the person who gets to be in the presence of God, then what chance do I have? David the adulterer, David the murderer, David the one who was an absentee father at times, who had crazy rebellious kids who were rebelling against him and trying to overthrow his kingdom, what chance must he have thought do I have? And yet, unlike Peter, David understood under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that ultimately this description was of someone else as 
David and Israel looked forward to a Messiah who would ascend the holy hill of God and be able to enter into the presence of God because he did embody fully the characteristics that are listed here. Speaking of Jesus, of course. The one who it says in Acts chapter 10, 38, he went about doing good. He had clean hands. The only one so pure that he could truthfully say himself, I always do what pleases the Father, John 8, 29. The one who was so devoted to the glory of his Father that he could say, I have glorified you on earth by completing the work you have given me to do. The one, the only one, who had such integrity that could it be said of him by Peter, he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. You see, in verses 3 through 6, this description that's given here, the one in view should be us. In a sense, it must be us. But it never could be us on our own. And so Jesus did what we could not so that it could be true of us as well. This is what Paul says, does he not, in 2 Corinthians 5.21? When he says to the Corinthians, for our sake... God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God? Now someone might ask at this point, Pastor Daniel, I hear what you're saying, but what is left then for us to do when it comes to righteously living? Is there no sense in which this description must be functionally true of us as well, that our own actions and thoughts have an impact upon our intimacy with God? I would say it's a great question, and I would say the answer to that is yes, but maybe not in the way that you think. Because the purity which grants us access to God's presence is never your own works, purity, clean hands, fidelity, or integrity. It's only ever Jesus's. So here's what that means practically for you and I as disciples. If you have accepted Christ, but you are living in unrepentant sin, You may, in fact, be a Christian and be found to be one ultimately on Judgment Day, but experientially for you, God is far off because that's what sin does. Sin separates. This is what God, through his prophet Isaiah, said under the inspiration of the Spirit in Isaiah 59 to his people. He said, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear These are God's people, his covenant people, and yet their experience of God in this moment was that he was far off. Why? Because they had unrepentant sin in their life and iniquity in their life. David, again, in Psalm 51, actually gives us the antidote. He gives us the remedy, and maybe not in the way that you would think. What is it that restores right relationship with God? Here's what he says in Psalm 51, 17. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken heart, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He's speaking of repentance here. And do you know what repentance is? Repentance is a brokenheartedness over sin, and then it results in a turning from that sin to God. But it's the first part of that that actually restores intimacy. It's a broken heart over your sin that restores intimacy. The second part, turning away from sin and to God, is just the fruit of true repentance, not the basis for your intimacy. Why is that? Because it's our brokenheartedness and our confession of sin that Jesus' 
Righteousness then becomes applied to us, not because of our works. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Another way of saying this is that where there's genuine broken-hearted confession of sins, where we fall short of God's holy ways and we know it and we confess that, God applies his son's righteousness to us. He applies Jesus' clean hands and pure heart and undying loyalty to God and perfect integrity to us. And then it's in our gratitude for this amazing grace that obedience to God follows. You may have heard the expression before, most popularly attributed to Martin Luther, where he says that all, all of the Christian life is a life of repentance. All of a Christian's life is one of repentance. Have you heard that before? And I mean, my inclination in the past has been to be, that's an overstatement. Like we all will get entrenched in different portions of our journey with Jesus where we will, you know, kind of have a myopic view of what's most important or critical to our walk with Jesus at the expense of it. I think through my study of this psalm, I better understand now why that's actually true. Because repentance starts with a broken heart over sin, and this is the key to a close relationship with God. I hope this makes sense because it's the essence of the gospel and it's so easy to get it wrong. It's probably the place I most frequently have to recalibrate my own heart to what the Bible actually says about how we enter into relationship with God. And because, so it's, because it's so important, before we move on, I want to just try to say in one other way, as simply as I can, what I think David is communicating to us, God ultimately is communicating to us here about the gospel. Because what I think he's saying is that a basis for a close relationship with God is never your own clean hands, pure heart, fidelity, or integrity. It's only ever Jesus's. He's the only one ultimately in view here in verses three through six. But the lack of those things in our life should prompt self-examination and confession and repentance because without that, you're not living under the righteous covering that Jesus died to give you, so you will not have access to God's holy presence. Does that make sense? Anecdotally, here's how self-examination has worked for me. When you give God the, the space through prayer, through reflection, sometimes in community, the Holy Spirit will show you where you're falling short, but he won't stop there. He will also show you and remind you of what Jesus has done for you where you fell short. And then from there, there's no greater motivation in life to live with clean hands, a pure heart, fidelity, and integrity for God. Moving on to verses 7 through 10, I want to show you how uh, the proof actually is here, that this is ultimately talking about Jesus in these final four verses. The proof of who shall ascend the holy hill of the Lord is found in Christ based upon these verses. Let me reread those and then we'll talk just for a few moments about them. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. All Christian traditions see these verses as fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. He is the King of glory that's in view here. 
And it's Jesus' ascension, that event of his ascension after he had risen from the dead, that's probably in view. In fact, it's even ascension language, as you may remember, that we were just talking about in verses 3 through 6. And it's interesting to know, too, that throughout the history of the church, traditionally, this psalm has been read or sung on Ascension Sunday, the Sunday that takes place 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus, because the church historically has believed this psalm to refer to Jesus' ascension to heaven. So the scene is one of Jesus returning to heaven, victorious from a battle that he has just fought and won. So what is that battle? Well, in the Old Testament context, the immediate fulfillment may have been the victory that God had given to Israel over their earthly enemies and the return of God, therefore, represented by the ark to his rightful place at the center of the community of Israel. But ultimately, if this in fact is fulfilled in Jesus, and it is, it's a prophecy of Jesus returning from his earthly victory over Satan, sin, and death. So the gates here then are the gates of heaven welcoming him home. And the heavenly hosts are the throngs of angels who are bowing in worship of Jesus as he now from heaven lives to make intercession for his saints on the basis of his own clean hands, pure heart, undying loyalty to God, and perfect integrity. I want to circle back to one comment I made earlier and then we'll close. And that's about how difficult it may be for some of us to actually receive this concept or understanding, this reality that we're owned by God and to see that as a privilege rather than something that is oppressive. The key to that shift in understanding to see this as a privilege is in seeing this, that the one who owns us is also the one who died for us. That the one who owns you is also the one who purchased you out of your slavery to sin. That the one who owns you is also the one who freed you from your guilt and shame. The one who owns you is also the one who made it possible for you to enter into God's glorious presence now and for all of eternity at great cost to himself. Because when we understand that, we understand God is good. We understand the benevolence of this God who we belong to. You see, in the Garden of Eden, before sin, Adam and Eve would have been delighted to know that they belonged to God. They would have felt that to be a privilege. They would have worn it as a badge of honor because they perfectly trusted God and they understood his benevolence. But sin causes us to doubt that. Sin causes us to be skeptics. So God, in response to this, sacrificed his only begotten beloved son, not just pragmatically to save you from sin and restore you to right relationship to him, but so that you could know and trust that he is good. Not even Adam and Eve got to see that. Even Adam and Eve prior to sin would not have understood the depths of God's goodness like we can because of how God demonstrated that in the cross. And so that is why we can declare not as people who feel oppressed, but as people who are privileged that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. That includes me. That includes you. What a privilege. And so let's continue our time of worship now, rejoicing that we belong to God because he is good and he has proven that in his son. Father, we pray now that you would open our eyes to see your gospel, your goodness rightly. 
what a great temptation it is, Lord, to take it upon ourselves, to save ourselves, to make ourselves clean and righteous. And what a great grace it is that you demonstrated, not only that we never could, but your great love for us in providing the one who could, your son Jesus Christ, who has perfectly clean hands, pure heart, undying loyalty and integrity. Thank you that we can be found in him. May that be a source of freeing truth for those who need that this morning, and may that compel us to loving obedience, to live as those people who reflect Christ in, those, in that way. We pray this in his name. Amen.